0: Retro computing and repairing treasures from our technology past, Neil from YouTube channel Retro Man Cave is here to share his experiences. All this and more on James Woodcock's Game and Gadget podcast. Welcome to my Game and Gadget podcast. I'm James Wilcock, and I realised just recently it has been over five years since I recorded a show. So, with a fancy new microphone, mixer, and the desire to interview fascinating individuals, today I am delighted to kickstart these efforts by talking to Neil from popular YouTube channel Retro mancave which will soon pass over 100,000 subscribers due to as many videos covering retro computing repair and nostalgia. So, thanks for joining me today, Neil. Hello, James. Oh, it sounds kind of scary when you say those numbers out loud,
1: but uh, thank you for having me, Um, and I hope it helps in some small parts to uh,
0: relaunch your show after your hiatus. Thank you very much. Well, if I get anywhere close to 100,000, I'll be very impressed. So, what is the Retro Man Cave, for those who haven't seen your channel?
1: Okay, um, so the Retro Man Cave comprises of the Retro Man, that's me and the cave which is the space i work in and i think sometimes actually the cave has a personality of its own um i think anyone could actually walk in sometimes and and present from the cave and it would it would support them just fine so it 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 comprises of me and the cave and what i spend my days doing is um tinkering with old computers and tech like some kind of retro hermit and i decided one day to film these tinkerings this is this is going back to 2017 and as it happens, people enjoy watching it. So uh, I kept on doing it and it evolved into this YouTube channel that it is now, as you say, nearly 100,000 subscribers. We're at about 92,000 at the moment. Um, and it's evolved into kind of a, a variety of formats, if you like, ranging from tutorials and restorations. Um, I go on road trips to interesting places. I interview industry veterans, make the occasional documentary style video um all about computer history and um yeah that that's kind of what happens here anything and anything and everything to do with with retro
0: two years you've had quite some time now to be dabbling and to get to anywhere near a hundred thousand subscribers plaudits to you that's not an easy thing to achieve so what was your prior experience to this how did you sort of feel qualified to get into the youtube realm
1: oh i didn't feel qualified at all and I, i certainly didn't um I didn't say I'm going to be a YouTuber and and set out to do it. I I think I, like many other people, just turned the camera on one day and and started chatting away um, completely unscripted. The topic of the first video I put out was um, a flight simulator. I can't remember which one it was now, but I leave it on the channel as I do with all my old videos so that I I quite like people to be able to look back and and see that I've actually made some progress and, and the channel has evolved rather than trying to cover up my past. Um, but you will find older videos. You will find videos that go back to 2012. Um, and this is this is quite a big regret of mine, is that I, I did register the channel in 2012, the name Retro Man Cave, on YouTube. And I did it for the sole purpose of um, I had to sell off my collection at the time. So I made videos that I then put the link to on my eBay listings to sell off my retro gear. But there was a seed. There was obviously a seed when I chose that name of maybe I could do something on YouTube, but I just didn't get around to it for another five years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you see these YouTubers who started, you know, back here in 2010, 2012. And, you know, they're touching on a million subscribers. I'm not I'm not saying that would have happened because it may have been a completely different channel if I didn't wait another five years for my own development maturity whatever to change Um, but yeah I do wonder sometimes
0: if I started in 2012 in earnest where would we be now it's amazing how YouTube has progressed over the years absolutely and all credit to you it's a quite a crowded space the retro area there's lots of other channels there doing sort of similar things but you found your niche you found your audience and it's a hundred thousand I can only see it going from strength to strength He's hoping,
1: yeah, yeah. The uh, the charts are still on the up and up, so um, I'm I'm hoping that we'll soon cross that hundred thousand, and it will keep going. And I take inspiration from the likes of people like obviously LGR and, and the Eight Bit Guy, two of the the big the big dogs in the retro scene with over a million subscribers. So the audience is there; they've proven it. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to uh, continue to grow
0: in the way that they have. Yeah. So this studio itself, you've actually had a a newer space, I think it was about, was it several months ago, you actually changed your cave location so to be?
1: It was longer than that actually, Um, it was about a year ago, so the first videos I made were in the back bedroom of my flat, which incidentally was a a basement flat, so it was very cave-like and underground, Um, and then I found a, a local office for rent in the town where I live, and it was an office that nobody wants because it's, again, in the basement, so nice and cave-like. Um, and so I moved here, must have been January 2018. Yeah, so it must be nearly two years I've been here, actually. Um, of time flies. Um, and, and it's the perfect space for me. I, I've set up, anyone who's seen the channel will recognize the Apple boxes that I have at the back of the set with RGB lighting. I've tried to give it a bit of personality and, and its own style. Um and it seems it seems to work sorry i'm just smashing my headphones against the microphone there um it it seems to work
0: so obviously you've got almost like a studio set view where you're looking you've got that fantastic backdrop with retro machines and titles on display but if we were to have a sneaky peek and looked off center to the side what what is the surroundings it's one long room um and it has evolved in in the
1: space of time that i've been in this room so when i first moved here you would have come in and looked at it and you would have gone this is this is a midlife crisis this is a middle-aged man with just piles of retro stuff who doesn't know what to do with it and um, over time it's turned more into a studio more into a working space (laughs) so that i can actually be a bit more productive Um, so uh, if you look around i'm just looking at it now If if i look around from the set Um, At the other end of the room is my main computer where I sit and do all of my editing. So there's an editing corner. Off to one side is the lab. And sometimes I film facing the lab. So that's where I do the repairs with the nice um, ESD safe mat so that hopefully I don't zap any electronics. Um, But it is quite a small room. Um, Most people who come and visit um, comment how it looks uh, looks bigger on TV. (laughs) And lots of people do visit, by the way, which is nice. I've got quite an open door policy for... Most viewers who uh, happen to be in the area, they'll pop in for a cup of coffee, which is really nice and a a nice way to build the community. How often do you like to release videos? Do you have a kind of schedule you try and stick to? I do. Um, So Thursdays is the the big video release day. So I try and do one a week. Um, And then I also have what's called the Retro Tea Breaks, which is more of a podcast format, although I do film it. And that's where I interview people. And the purpose of that one on the Mondays was to try and um, just have a chat with someone and have a format that would be a lot quicker to edit and get out there. So it was just, I literally just record it and upload it. Whereas the Thursdays um, releases are a lot more um, Cinna Cine, 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 what's the word? Sinny something. Um, yeah, they've got a lot more flair, a lot more editing involved, um, c- I'm trying to say a word that I can't remember. <laughs> what is the word,
0: James? Help me out here. I don't know. It sounds rather it's silly something. <laughs>
1: There's more cinematography involved. Let's say that.
0: Oh, that's, That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so just out of personal curiosity then, so when you're editing your videos, what actual software are you using for that? So I'm using Premiere. Um, I've got the whole
1: Adobe CC collection.
0: Of course you have.
1: Legally, I might add. <laughs> of course, absolutely. Me too, me too. <laughs> and um, so I'm using Premiere to edit. Uh, I'm using Audition to do some of the audio editing. Um, and Illustrator and Photoshop to knock up different illustrations that I need to, to use and animate. I don't actually dip into After Effects at all. That's like a whole beast unto itself. And um, I think I'd have to take some courses if I was ever to use that properly i have opened it a few times and gone oh, that looks a bit scary and generally i don't need explosions and star fields and special effects in my videos so um i can manage with premiere
0: yeah well seeing you're dealing with some crts and certainly when you're putting a screwdriver down behind <laughs> them you may get real explosions if you've yeah lucky. we don't need
1: after effects <laughs> for that
0: <Exactly. laughs> yeah. oh I'll, oh the videos where i hear it go pop and that's just what's being picked up on the mic, so I'm sure it sounds equally, if not more so, impressive in person. <laughs> wow. That freaks me out and I'm miles and miles away in the safety and comfort of my own home. But I digress. You get used to it. I, I could only hope so. <laughs> so... um is there anyone actually involved with the production work? Because this is something you've just recently started doing as a full-time venture, but obviously your time is going to be quite limited at other times. Is there anyone who gives you any assistance in recording or editing, or is it just literally you?
1: Yeah, so um, as of this week, you just mentioned full-time. As of this week, I've, I've gone full-time as a YouTuber. I've, I've relinquished myself of my other job. Thank uh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh no no there is nobody else involved it's just me here so i i write this do the research write the script set the cameras up um get the audio working and i've had to learn a lot along the way you know i had no history of filmmaking i was a terrible photographer so i don't know how i've managed to make good videos i it just seems to work uh <laughs> when i when i use a video camera compared to a, a taking photographs for some reason um So it is just me, and then I sit down and uh, make a big cup of coffee and edit it all together.
0: Well, I must admit from my own personal experience, I've had no sort of formal training, and actually it was more out of fun and creating home videos that I got into it. So if I went on holiday, I'd splice scenes together, put in some background music, and that became a video I shared with family and maybe unlucky friends. (laughs) 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 Uh, And to sort of talk retro for a minute, so... My first true video editing experience would have been on a Matrix Mystique graphics card. Oh, nice. Uh, and you could have bought an add-on for that particular graphics card. And It was just a like a 2D graphics card with very, very, very basic sort of 3D acceleration. Oh. Certainly not in the 3DFX world. But you could buy an add-on for this card called the Rainbow Runner. Mm-hmm. And that would be a great hardware acceleration for a particular type of video format, which I believe was MJPEG. This is how far back we're going yeah. now. But certainly importing your tape video and then using MJPEG compression and then creating your edits of the video, it was, for the time anyway, it was accessible. And it came with all the videos and sort of basic audio editing software, so you could dabble and experiment and actually create some fairly convincing output from it and so that's how my sort of video team background and then using that I started creating DVDs for Yamaha for example so flagship instruments they would create I would help them and I'd be actually producing their DVDs and that just came from creating home videos and I think we're very lucky that particularly in the last 20 years or so Technology has certainly made it more accessible for almost anybody to get involved in something like this. Oh, it has, and, yeah, yeah. And if they've got the personality, and yourself has obviously got the personality to attract the people to subscribe to your channel, and you've got an interesting subject that you cover, that you have that ability and you're able to publish videos. YouTube are very lucky to have as a platform. So it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, cinematic that was the word I was trying to think of
1: <laughs> but um yeah I mean it's almost like uh I I sometimes wish that I was 10 years older so that I was in the right place at the right time for the, the whole bedroom coding boom I was a little bit too young to get on board with that although I did dabble with basic you know I would have loved to have been a, a darling brother or an Oliver twin but i guess you know uh, what you were saying about um video editing is is kind of the same thing we were at the right place at the right time to get on board with digital video editing and analog back then as well yeah. and, and be able to turn that into into something um i don't go back as far as you with the video editing um probably premiere version 4 something like that and i used to make videos um at work when i was an it technician um to keep the IT manager happy. So once a year he would have to do his presentation to, to the big cheeses. So I'd help him knock something up to show all the stats from the help desk and things like that. So uh, <laughs> that's probably where I first started playing with Premiere, yeah.
0: That's an interesting comment actually. So if you think of Worms, a game I still adore today, there's still iterations of Worms being appearing on many, many platforms. It's on the Switch, it's on the PC, it's on the Xbox, it's on your phone, it's everywhere. And it was originally a guy who did it, I believe, on an Amiga in his garage, and he struggled originally to, I think I'm reciting this right, to get a publisher, and then he got one in the end. And that's become a phenomenon that must have made quite a lot of money over the
1: years. I think it started out as a competition in Amiga format. Ah. I think that was Worms, yeah. Um, uh, And it may have been in Blitz Basic originally oh wow correct me if I'm wrong but yeah I think that's part of how it started anyway sorry
0: to interrupt you James no that's absolutely fine so but maybe it's come sort of full circle now so when we're talking about phones and app stores that's probably made it a little bit more accessible if you are getting into development to at least create a very rudimentary basic game and there's platforms like Unity on the PC which you can again create some games based on that so maybe it's become a little bit more accessible again and it's but there's certainly a lot of competition out there.
1: Yeah, there's always um, a problem that comes with the accessibility in games programming, which is you then end up with a lot of games that look the same, <laughs> as opposed to if you're writing a game from the, the ground up. Um, but yeah, it, you know, if it can lead on to to better things, it's always good to have a point of entry. For us, it was basic. If for people now, it's Unity, which is a huge complex beast. Um, I haven't actually tried to to program on Unity. Um, Is it accessible? Can you just sit down and easily knock out a game without learning too much?
0: I am not, unfortunately, qualified (laughs) to answer that. (laughs) 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 Maybe someone can contact us and let us know from their experience. There are things like (laughs) Fusion
1: on the Switch, which is a new basic-based programming language for the Switch, but you are working from the same uh, library of assets, so you're going to end up with a lot of similar-looking games. But that's not to say it's not a good place to learn the basics of programming, absolutely.
0: Yeah, but certainly going back and thinking the technology leaps that would have been made. So I think the jump from, say, 8-bit to 16-bit, 2D to 3D, there have been so many advances and how quickly sprites can move around on the screen, how many number of sprites, uh, and factoring all these different things. It's probably easier to create something more unique than it is now.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah you'd have to do some pretty horrendous coding to cause slowdown with 2d sprites now <laughs>
0: <laughs> but i'm still glad there's a place for 2d sprites. there certainly been a resurgence over the last couple of years in particular where 2d seems to have made a return an even 8-bit representation of games you can buy an 8-bit style looking game for the most powerful console in the world And I just find that fascinating and brilliant that we don't forget this style, that it is an art form. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And doesn't it look better than
1: PlayStation 1 era 3D? (laughs) definitely age better. 2D pixel art, yeah, it, it doesn't age, does it, compared to those early 3D ventures. So
0: I'm all for it, yeah. Yeah, so I'm. I'm still fascinated by a classic point-and-click adventure games. So, Simon the Sorcerer, Simon Max Dare, the Tentacle, Broken Sword. The list goes on and on. I can still just sit at, say, an iPad and play Broken Sword on there, and it's still looks great the story's still engaging but to go to then a playstation one game it's much harder for me to sit down and go ah yes this is art oh look at the texture warping oh dear look at the basic pointy polygons although if you've seen elon musk's latest truck they've just oh, released the in cyber maybe it's all the fashion again yeah. Though,
1: don't <laughs> yeah certainly a low polygon effort from elon <laughs>
0: Prior to Retro Man Cave then, what was what was your occupation? How did you learn how to repair a machine? Um, well, my,
1: my profession I guess was I worked for 17 years in, in IT, starting off as a first line support guy. Um, going back to Windows NT four days, this would have been in the late nineties. Um, worked my way up through the help desk, became a server engineer, network engineer, IT manager, IT director, all of that business um and then after 17 years i got a bit burnt out as, as a lot of people do in that industry and um i had another little job on the side that i'd been building up which was in graphic design and, I, and i'd built that up enough to to support me to take a break from it that was only three or four years ago so um a lot of experience in it but that's not necessarily experience of taking machines apart and fixing them yes i did build PCs from scratch for as long as I can remember. Um, but I didn't have, ever have to pick up a soldering iron on the help desk, that's for
0: sure. That was going to be my question. When on earth did they ask you to get out the soldering iron?
1: <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't... You know, if, I, if I'd been in IT 20 years earlier, then yeah, sure, but it just just didn't happen anymore. Um, so that was very much just, just a hobby. Um, it was born out of a love for retro computers. So in the late 90s, I was doing things like buying arcade machines when you could still get hold of them very easily because arcades still existed i remember i picked up the yellow pages once phoned an arcade and said have you got any i can buy <laughs> he said yeah we've got a lockup full you can oh, have one wow. for 50 quid so um took an arcade home it was in a bad state um so that's the kind of projects that i'd pick up and fiddle with and learn things as i go um what did i do with that i ended up putting a main pc in there decasing the family CRT, the old uh, telly from the lounge and stuck that in there and um, figured out how to get it all working. But um, I'm I'm certainly not and I I never pretend to be an electronics engineer. I'm I'm very much a hobbyist and a problem solver. Um, And I think that comes across in the channel. Um, I think I'm uh, a problem solver and unless I truly understand what i've what i've had to teach myself to fix the problem that's in front of me then i don't try and teach it to other people i see that as the measure of my understanding so for example um, my most recent video i replace a flyback transformer on a crt so i went to a lot of effort to to try and further my knowledge on okay exactly what is a flyback transformer what why does it do this thing uh why are this why have i got these symptoms how is it related to that and then I'll fix it and then I'll explain it in, in layman's terms because I'm not an electronics engineer, so I can't use all of the technical terms uh, if I don't know them. And um, it it seems to inspire people either to fix their own uh, kit because they don't necessarily care about knowing what the electrons are doing at that level. They just want to know how to fix this broken thing. Or it inspires them to go on to more technical places and look up more and, and learn more. Um, other YouTube channels books or or whatever so I get a lot of positive feedback for for taking that approach from people who watch the channel Um, which is really nice
0: it's nice when you hear that you've inspired people you're basically following you on a journey as you explore and discover things along the way. You're not literally saying, okay, this is what you need to do. Here's step one, step two, step three. It's literally, you're on a journey. We're joining you for that journey. And let's see what we found out along the way. And a lot of it also is, it's not been a smooth ride. This didn't work. I shut it up and then this didn't work. And and, and it's all these... (laughs) The recent Amiga video.
1: I don't know if you saw that one. I was building a new Amiga and there was one episode in particular where just thing after thing you know the ram broke the um oh, what else broke on it all sorts broke on it uh it was two lots of ram actually that broke um the a pin snapped off of my vampire accelerator and then the the, the cream on the top was when i managed to put it all back together and boot it up my amiga booted as an atari yeah. <laughs> it booted <laughs> as an atari st and i'm like what the hell is going on after the day from hell trying to fix all this? It's just trolling me now. And um, it, it turned out that if you hold the fire button down on a joystick with a Amiga with a vampire in, the vampire, which is FPGA-based, will go into Atari ST mode. <laughs> and it just so happened I had a book or something sat on top of my joystick when I was
0: turning it on. <laughs> but that are literally the day-to-day frustrations, isn't it? That we're sharing your pain as you go on this journey. Yeah, it's all
1: part of the story. And... Exactly. You know, it's not a tutorial channel. Yes, you. You hopefully you'll learn skills as you go, but um, it's entertainment first and foremost. That's what I try and produce.
0: Absolutely, and I'm sure the community. uh, There will be times where they say, "Oh, have you tried this, or have you considered this part? It may help with this." And hopefully, getting some valuable feedback back from the videos as well for yourself. Yeah, that's the beauty of the episodic nature of a lot of the series that I do.
1: So, because I have to. And I do have to produce a video once a week, because if you don't, the YouTube algorithms will just punish you. Um, I have a limited amount of time to make a video. So if I want to do a big project, I'll break it down into three or four episodes. And um, usually I'll put out the first episode and immediately I'll get lots of feedback from people saying, have you seen this accelerator or this add on or, you know, do you need this to help you with it? And by the end of the series, I've had really kind and generous donations from people, um, good advice and and it turns into a, a result that's a hell of a lot better than it would have been if the community wasn't involved if it was just me saying this is what i'm going to do and this is how i'm going to do it so it really is beneficial
0: yeah what got you into this retro what was your first gaming and computer experiences that got you hooked uh, my very first computer was an amstrad cpc
1: 464 we're going back to 1985 i think that was um And I think my story is probably familiar to a lot of people. It was just the case that you you sat down and suddenly you were controlling what was on the television and you'd never done that before. It was that sense of control and wonder and I had no idea how it was working. I was just a kid. But the possibilities seemed completely limitless. Um, So I was hooked from day one. It was actually bought for me and my brother and I think after five minutes... He went off and played football he wasn't interested at all uh, so, so it became my computer um and yeah it just built ever since amstrad cpc went to an amiga 500 after that and then uh over to the pc as most people did in the 90s um and i've been a pc user ever since uh, until <laughs> until i started buying all the retro machines i guess
0: but now no doubt you're buying retro computers and machines that you didn't have at the time you've just read more about them and gone oh i i need this i want to explore this and on your channel i want to open it up and explore this yeah yeah um filling in the gaps buying the machines that
1: you wouldn't have had a hope in hell of being able to afford back in the day although prices are creeping up again yeah and hopefully i'm not responsible for that (laughs) but um you know things like um you know Amstrad mega pcs Sharp X68000, I didn't even know a Sharp 68000 existed in the 80s. This is an incredible powerhouse of a Japanese gaming desktop or tower. You can get it in two form factors. Um, Machine, so many, so many things. You know, we're talking about over 40 years of consumer electronics and and home computers to, to play with. I'm not in danger of running out of subject matter anytime soon or computers to pick up. And as soon do. as I scratch the surface on something, um, I don't know, I covered the Thompson Mo 5 which is a French computer. All of a sudden, people start making suggestions. Well, have you seen the Alice or have you seen this or that? You know, there's a whole range of computers in every country you've never heard of. Russian or, or Soviet ZX Spectrum clones. There's millions of them. You know, th- there's so much to explore. So, um, yeah, yeah, I- I'm really enjoying just every day is, is a day of discovery in retro computers. I love it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I remember back in the day looking at something like the Mega PC, as you've already described. So that would be the one where it's half Sega Mega Drive and half PC. And I'm, what, what was the processor in that one? Was it a 486, or 386?
1: That was a 386SX. Um, and there was a 486 version. I'm not sure they'd ever made it to market. So it was based on a, a standard Amstrad um, like a slimline desktop pc that they did and then they shoved a card into it to make it mega drive compatible in a cartridge slot at the front so because because of that amstrad um standard form factor i guess uh there is a 486 pc out there by amstrad that you can take the motherboard out of and put into a mega pc to make it a 486
0: but as standard yeah it's a 386 and that is the perfect example of, I remember that back in the day, seeing it brand new and thinking, oh, I would so want one of those. But the price was ridiculous. And I don't think even at the time a 386 was particularly fast. No, it was it was a little bit long in the tooth even by the
1: time it came out. Um, you were paying a £1,000 for a Mega Drive and
0: a slow PC. Just go out and buy a mega drive, mate. <laughs> I know, but it was just like the the fascination of a mega drive in a PC. How is this even possible? It's just wizardry, it's sorcery. How can this be happening? But yeah, I, I was very attracted to that at the time. But as you say, completely out of my price range for when you were a youngster. Yeah. But the one thing I didn't even realize existed that Laserdisc and Mega
1: Drive? Oh, yeah, the Pioneer Laser Active. That's a beast of a machine. Um, so that was sold in Japan only. And that, yeah, that's a huge Laserdisc player with, and it's not just Mega Drive. It's got, um, uh, a big hole in the front with an eject button and you can eject, you can put whole systems into that. So there's a Mega Drive uh, module that you slide in there and it's a Mega Drive and a Mega CD. Um, there's a PC engine module that you put in there. So suddenly it's a PC engine. Uh, and a karaoke module, and because it's Japanese, of course they've got karaoke. Absolutely. And all these other things. Uh And then, unlike the Mega PC, which is two separate systems in one box, there's no integration between the PC and the Mega Drive, on the Laser Active, they then bought out LaserDisc-based Mega Drive games. So there's this really rare, I can't even remember how there are, it's probably like 15 or 16 Mega Drive games on LaserDisc, and PC Engine as well. I'm not saying they're any good, but they're... They're
0: fascinating to explore, yeah. Hopefully everyone who's listened to this has seen a Laserdisc, or at least seen one online. But these are just gigantic CDs, really, and they <laughs> I own an actual Laserdisc. I don't have a player, I just wanted the novelty of actually being able to hold a Laserdisc. But they are such massive things. I guess the
1: most famous Laserdisc game is Dragon's Lair, isn't it? Oh, Absolutely. I'd love to get hold of a Dragon's
0: Lair machine. (laughs) Well, there we go. We'll keep our eyes out for that one. But I think, as you can tell, I've been watching your videos to be able to pick out all of these for you on this podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. I was was watching one, and I actually watched it for the second time because it was a computer that's very dear to my heart. So in the past, I owned an Acorn Archimedes A3010. Mm -hmm. So while everybody else had their Amigas and their Atari STs, I was like the... The weird kid who had the Acorn Archimedes A3010. I didn't like to say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, to be fair, it was an awesome machine. It didn't have a huge amount of software support, but there were some great key titles on there. So it came with Zool, for example, and obviously Zool was on various platforms, but it, it seemed to run absolutely fine and look absolutely fine on the Acorn. But I think what drew me in at the time was the operating system seemed quite ahead of its time it seemed very stable it has a lot of the nice windowing that we all see today and just take for granted but the bit i loved the most and you did the risk pc video was the arm processor mm. so just you want to give a little bit of background i don't want to spoil your moment you just tell us about arm because this machine when i was ridiculed for my acorn archimedes has somehow taken over the world
1: yeah so um ARM, processor.
0: ARM process, processors
1: go all the way back to um, ACORN in the early 80s. So they developed uh, a processor and they, they tested it on the BBC Micro's tube port. So uh, they created this new processor, tested it on the tube port, and it's what's known as a, a risk or reduced instruction set CPU. I think that's what it is. Computing. 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 Thank you for correcting me. Sorry. Um as opposed to CISC, which is the complex instruction sets that you get in the Intel CPUs. So it's a slightly different approach to, um, you know, how you instruct these processors. And the wonderful thing about them is that they used very little power compared to the CISC CPUs, which is why over the years it's evolved into the perfect CPU for tablets and for telephones. And, and it's it's in every device you can think of. Um but before it got into mobile phones and tablets, it was known as, uh, hmm, was it ARM at this point? I think it was ARM, uh, but the A stood for ACORN for a long time before it changed. Anyway, it went into the Archimedes range of computers. So you had the BBC Micro, then you had the BBC Master and the Master Compact, and then ACORN moved on to the Archimedes range, and it was all based on their RISC CPUs. And it was powerful, powerful, I'd say low-powered, low, low powered, but powerful CPU. Um, before we had 3D accelerations as standard in our machines, I remember seeing things like E-Type Jag uh, and Chocks Away and all of these Star Glider, all of these 3D games running on Archimedes, Conqueror and Zarch, and they just flew. The frame rate was incredible. Um, my Amiga 500 couldn't keep pace. It was just the fact that I had a much bigger library of games on my Amiga 500 that kept me interested, but I was slightly envious of... The one weird kid that we had that owned an acorn, Archimedes <laughs> and our estates when I used to go around and play uh, on that, so um yeah, it's a machine that uh, even if it wasn't the most successful machine uh, it's it's probably had the most successful legacy of all retro computers in that arm processor for sure.
0: Thank you for making me feel a little bit better. (laughs) In fact, I need to dig it out of the garage and make sure it still works. I need to dive into my cave and see how that's still going. But anyway, moving on. So for anyone wishing to learn how to repair older systems, is there any recommendations you would suggest? Obviously, they can get the enthusiasm and get some of your journey experiences by watching your channel. But what do you think the next logical step would be so they could actually dabble themselves well, YouTube is
1: is a fantastic resource for picking up new skills. Not not just me, but, you know, there's loads of channels out there that, that can help you to pick up the basics. But my advice would be to buy yourself a soldering iron, get yourself a broken bit of electronics, and just first and foremost, get, get handy with the soldering iron. Learn how to remove components, how to add components. Um, just get a feel for what what how does it react how do the pads on the board react if you haven't got enough heat if you've got too much heat what does flux do to help you um how do you use desoldering braid to to remove things just play around um because i I, I, i'm very hands-on uh i I like to i basically learn from breaking things that's how i learn (laughs) (laughs) I, i don't learn from (laughs) It feels too much like school to pick up a book and start reading, you know, the fundamentals of electronics before you even get your hands dirty. So I would say pick up a soldering iron, learn how to use it. And then when you're starting to feel a bit more confident and you've got that nice feedback of feeling like you've learned something, um, then pick up a book and then go, okay, so what's this funny looking component and what does that do? Um, But the, the beauty of if you're doing it, For the purpose of fixing retro computers the beauty of that is they've been around for you know 30 or 40 years it's very well known what a lot of the common problems are with them so as long as you know how to use a soldering iron and you can see what the symptom is of your problem i don't know there's a squeal from the monitor or whatever it is it's highly likely that you'll find on a forum somebody who's describing your problem perfectly and what the fix is so say replace capacitor c25 as long as you know how to use a soldering iron and, and you're confident that you're working safely you're not going to zap yourself um yeah avoid monitors <laughs> to start with but um then you've got the skills to do that you you don't yet know why it's fixing it but you've achieved your objective of fixing your original zx spectrum or whatever it was and then you can continue your journey to learn about why it fixed it but you get the satisfaction of having fixed something. So
0: start with a soldering iron. Absolutely. So what are the common things that appear a lot as problematic areas in computing? From watching your videos, a lot of it seems to be leaky batteries, which is can be devastating or not so bad if you catch it in time, or capacitors. Capacitors, and it's... Um, it, it's a
1: pain because, yeah, capacitors are at are an age in these machines where they're all leaking. There are different periods of time, like um, in the early 2000s, where there was lots of really quite poor quality surface mount capacitors, so they're all leaking. Uh, there's a period in the 90s, like with the Amiga 600 and Amiga 1200, they've got there's a period there where their capacitors are really bad, but then you might have a BBC Micro from 1981. Which is working perfectly fine, um, it, it, but but you would still want to change the capacitors on a machine that old. But the problem for me is because pretty much everything has bad capacitors that I touch around here. The last thing I want to do is put out a video week after week that is, let's change the capacitors because people will get bored of that pretty quickly. But it is the main problem if you're fixing machines. That is the number one thing you're going to come up against is dodgy capacitors. Absolutely,
0: and it's certainly a page you need to be. Well, at least have be the what's the word I'm looking for? Have the patience of a saint. That's the term you do need patience. Um, yeah, particularly with capacitors because some of them have a lot,
1: yeah, like the Pioneer Laser Active. There were, oh, I don't know, there must have been about 200 capacitors that we had to change on that thing. That that took a couple of days. Um, but others are not so bad. Amstrad CPC, you know, that's got about two through hole capacitors on the main board, um, and they rarely break so depends what you're working on a mega drive that's got way more than you would think looking at it from the outside um but yeah get used to capacitors and changing capacitors if you're working on retro kit for
0: sure so how is it how easy is it to find the parts for the, the capacitors the batteries and any other bits and bobs you may need that's not too much of a
1: problem you've got places like cpc and rs components um you can find pretty much anything you need um, some of the bigger capacitors get a little bit pricey, um, so it depends how much you value that piece of retro kit that you're trying to fix, but you can get hold of most things without a problem, yeah.
0: Has there been a, a bodge you've had to do because you haven't been able to get a part that you're particularly proud of?
1: Mm, not really, sometimes I have to bodge together a couple of resistors to get the resistance I need just because I haven't got the right part in stock, <laughs> but Yeah. No, no, I, I can't think. Uh, I'm usually, I've got usually a couple of videos on the go. So if I really need something, I, I can afford a little bit of time to order it and get it in. Um, so, yeah, and because um, because I'm making videos, there's nowhere to hide. If I bodge something, someone will spot it and they will call me out on it. <laughs> so it's just not <laughs>
0: worth it. <laughs> And the more subscribers you get, the more people who can comment. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what have been your favorite moments on Retro Man Cave so far? Um, favorite moments. Um,
1: you mentioned the laser active. I really enjoyed that because I worked um, a lot with a chap called Mark from Mark Fixes Stuff, another great YouTube channel on that one. And I really do enjoy collaborating with people. Um, so that was nice. Um, I think one of the things that it's really afforded for me is that it's um, it's opened doors. Um, so I mentioned the the Monday videos I do sometimes called retro tea breaks. There's not a chance in hell that um, Allo from Sierra or um, David Fox or who else have I spoken to the Oliver twins. There's no way they would have entertained speaking to me unless they saw, you know, uh, uh, here's a guy with a, with an audience. Um, and they can hear our story. So I think the f- favourite thing that's come out of it for me is the fact that I've been able to talk to my heroes. You know, I've been able to talk to these legends, and they say yes when I ask them. Um, and hopefully that will continue. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Rob Hubbard. I spoke to Rob Hubbard the other day. It was amazing. <laughs> well, why was it amazing? Because
0: it's Rob it? Hubbard.
1: Because it's what? Rob Hubbard.
0: Was there any revelations? I mean, what what came out of it? Come on, come on
1: there's no revelation no it's just just nice to speak to the man himself you know Um, okay here's a revelation he did reveal that he would often make a C64 um, track for a game he'd make the music for it and then it was his wife who would port it to the Amstrad or the ZX Spectrum she'd do that version
0: it wasn't him (laughs) there you go there's always a revelation yeah there you go so what are the classic games that live in your memory if you were going to select a few what would it be, do you think? So just thinking
1: about when I go to expos, the two arcade cabinets I always uh, make a beeline for are Robotron. Love that game. It's the Williams game, I think it's 1982. That for me is the perfect arcade experience. It, 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 it sucks you in. You're, you're fully immersed when you're playing that. You've got to play it with two joysticks. If you haven't played it uh, and you've played Smash TV, that's like a an evolution of Robotron. Um, That kind of intense uh, arcade shooter. And I'm not a fan of um, shooters, really, in arcades, but Robotron. It's just, it's a genre all of its own. I love it. Um, And Outrun, just because Outrun makes you feel cool as hell when you play it in a (laughs) sit-down arcade, you know, the the full-size sit-down Outrun cabinet. It's the coolest game around. Um, I mentioned Dragon's Lair earlier. I don't know why I like Dragon's Lair. It's... It's crap. <laughs> it, is. it sucks
0: your money. The game is awful.
1: There's n- there is no gameplay whatsoever, but I love playing it. Uh, yeah, as you say, especially now you can play it on free play. Um, Which is something advantageous. Yeah. And then on, on the home computers, um, I make no uh, disguise of the fact that I'm a complete nerd and love flight simulators. Uh, and I love the Ultima series of role-playing games. Uh, between Flight Sims and Ultima,
0: they've taken hours of my life away, hundreds of hours of my life. So, do you have much time to enjoy the technology around you? So, you stream often live on Twitch of your gameplays and you're talking to people as they're commenting within Twitch. That's always nice to see. But other than that, if you weren't broadcasting, do you actually get the time to sit down with one of your beloved retro machines and think, I just want to play this? It has nothing to do with the video. I just want to play. This game and this bit of hardware. No, it's the most
1: frustrating part of YouTubing you can imagine. If you want to use and play retro games, don't become a YouTuber. Because you'll spend a week fixing a bit of kit and you'll go, brilliant, it's the most perfect example of, a don't know, an Amstrad CPC in the country right now. it's, It's mint, it's perfect. But I've got to put it away now because I've got to start work on my next video. Ah, it's so annoying. Um, so that's kind of why I started t- Twitch streaming a little bit more because it gives me, you know, reason to uh, to keep it out to to plug it in and create entertainment and content and keep the viewers happy while actually getting to to play on this kit. Um, and something that has helped recently to allow me to play uh, and explore a few more systems and games, is, is the Mister, which is an FPGA-based device, which has calls for loads of systems. And um, it runs them really authentically, so it's FPGA-based. I'm going to say emulation, but people will kill me for using the word emulation. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, and it's really, um, it's really convenient to pick up and fire up a system and play on. So,
0: um, yeah, I've, I don't get... Nearly enough time. Nearly enough time. How do you feel about modern technologies, So game consoles and smart home technologies and Philips Hue light bulbs. Does any of that interest you?
1: Um, the consoles do. I mean, the nice thing about what I do is it means I'm, I'm so many generations behind the current gen that when I do sit down on a modern console, I am wowed. <laughs> because, you know, I've just spent the week playing on a BBC Micro. And now here's a PlayStation 4 that's just absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, that's an advantage of playing with retro tech. But outside of that, um, no, I'm I'm not paranoid, but I'm not a fan of inviting tech into my home that's, you know, always listening with the objective to target me as a consumer. So I I try to avoid the listening devices. Um, I spoke to my energy company recently. They were trying to push me to get a smart meter. And uh, I said, "Well, what happens when I move to to the next provider? Can I take it with me?" No, no, no. It becomes a dumb meter there. So, you know, there's no standards for those devices. So, I'm absolutely not an early adopter. I tend to let other people iron out all the problems, and then when it's a couple of generations in, yeah, I'll probably get on board. You know, Um, but no, I'm a bit of a luddite in that respect.
0: Well, I'll be the weird kid. I'll be the one experimenting then and and taking all the pain initially. (laughs) And I'm sure sure in 20 years you'll be working on repairing an Xbox One X.
1: There you go. You pay £500 for this bit of kit and then in a few years I'll pay a tenner for it and all the problems will be gone. And that's it. That's how it works. So uh, thank you to all the guinea pigs out there who are on the cutting edge.
0: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) But I guess the biggest problem, when you look at retro gaming in particular... You'd buy the floppy disk, you'd buy the cassette, the cartridges. But more and more of that's becoming digital. So even if you had the physical copy of the disk, potentially in 20 years' time, that would have had a patch related to it or some online multiplayer. And this is bits we're most likely going to miss out on. And unless you experienced it at the time, unless there was someone recording a video of it at the time, it's going to be very hard to sort of re-experience that moment in time.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And with the modern
1: consoles, um, how how are future retro content creators going to play these games when they're completely reliant on online services? I'm sure the very biggest games, people will take the time to reverse engineer a server to keep it going or something like that. But so much will become inaccessible, completely inaccessible. And as you say, if they don't record it now... How are we going to see that so it's going to be some there are going to be some interesting times in another twenty years or so for sure.
0: so what are your future plans for retro man cave
1: well as I said, full time as of this week, so i'm just letting the dust settle on that. Um, the goal is not to create more content it's to kind of up the quality rather than put the pressure on myself to release lots more videos so I've just just before um we started talking I've just finished the first video uh, which is the start of a series on the BBC Micro. Um so I've I've spent every hour this week of my full new full-time hours working on that video. And hopefully the quality will show when it comes out It'll come out to patrons next week. Hopefully, you know, I I've improved the lighting. I've been using a green screen for the first time. Um I've up up updated the captions so they look a bit nicer so hopefully this extra time I've got will create better quality videos um, but other than that more of the same um, I'd be lying if I didn't say at the moment I am feeling a a little bit of a weight of expectation on my shoulders because I've announced to the world I'm full time and it's like okay are they? what are they expecting to see as a result of that hopefully what I've produced this week and the, the up, bump up in quality will satisfy that, but we'll see. And I think once that feeling has passed, I'll I'll reassess what else I can do. But more of the same, um, more videos, more retro tech. I've got a huge pile of machines that need to be looked at. I'm never going to run out of machines to fix. So
0: I'll just keep plowing on through them, James. Well, I'm sure in a few months time, we'll have some explosions from After Effects. (laughs) 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 And that'll all been worthwhile.
1: I'll do it just for
0: you. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Neil. I'm sure everyone's enjoyed listening. So where can we find out more? Um, the main place is
1: YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Retro If you want to interact with me, then Discord's brilliant. There's lots of people chatting. I've got a screen dedicated to Discord where I just chat to people all day long while I'm working. Um, Twitter, Facebook, all of the links. If you just open any video of mine on YouTube, look in the video description. You'll find all the links or just search for Retro Man Cave and you'll find
0: me.